The Missouri General Assembly is back in session after a lengthy spring break, and State Representative Elijah Haar and his colleagues will have some big decisions to make in the next few weeks. The Springfield Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, four, three, two, two one. one. Uh, I think that is fair yes, to I say. I say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studios in St. Louis is... Colleague Joe Manis. And joining us... Through the magic of radio in our Jefferson City studios, we have as our very special guest for this week. State Representative Elijah Haar from the 134th District in Southwest Missouri. Welcome to the show. You're a first-timer. I am a first-timer. There are so many state reps in Springfield and Southwest Missouri that I don't think we'll ever get to all of them, but we are collecting them on our show at a rapid pace. Um, uh, Representative Har, I guess you're in your second term in the Missouri House. Is that correct? That's correct. I'm midway through my fourth year in the legislature. So before we get to your background and any hard-hitting questions, tell us what your district encompasses. I guess it's it's a lot of Springfield, but just kind of give us a sense of what you represent. So I'm primarily Southwest Springfield. It's a heavily uh, urban or suburban district. Um, we're best known in the northeastern quarter of my district is the national headquarters of Bass Pro. Um, yes. The, the the first store, so to speak. Where so you can get lost that's, very easily. Oh, it's, I can it's enormous. That. That's right. <laughs> And what, what, what is that the only thing in your district, or do you have other things besides so we, Bass Pro? We have quite a few businesses in my district, and then I go well out into the suburbs of Springfield. And so I have, I'm really fortunate in that I can door knock, go door to door in basically the entire portion of my district. I just can park at any city block and just start walking. Um, I don't have a very rural district, so I don't have to, you know, reach those people by radio or, or TV. And, and my, the blue collar area of my district where the homes are smaller and closer together. Um, we're really fortunate as far as like where I, I, I can door knock basically every house in my district. Now, does your district include uh, uh, some of the mega churches that are right there in that Southwest part that you can see in the landscape if you're in Springfield? Probably are they in not. A different... I mean, the, the, the largest churches in the district uh, are in Springfield. James River Assembly or Second Baptist are not in my district. I do have Ridgecrest Baptist in my district. But, um, you know, honestly, most of my district being in southwest Springfield has is more homes than really anything else. Um, aside okay. from Bass Pro, I've got a, a handful of businesses, but it is it is really a suburban district. So tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of what you did before you ran for office, and kind of why you decided to run for the Missouri House in the first place. So I was born in northern Iowa, um, and my parents, uh, my, my dad was a, uh, education educator, and my mom was a social worker, and they decided at a fairly early age that they were going to try homeschooling. And so um, when my older sister and myself, my younger brother were born and, and they were homeschooling, I was one of the last three states in the nation where that was illegal. And so they did decided they were going to move somewhere else and they'd heard Missouri had really good laws. And so they moved us down to southwest Missouri. Um, my dad started doing home building and that was all the rage at the time. And so that's how we ended up there. But every every year they would drag us up to the Capitol to meet our state legislators and talk about uh, why they'd made that decision. And so I just I got used to being in the building. I got interested in public policy at an early age and um, 
when the opportunity presented itself after the redistricting in, in 2011, I was drawn into a brand new district. It, it seemed like an opportune time for me to, to take the plunge and, and at least try in some small way to, to effectuate public policy in Missouri. So who were some of the legislators you encountered when you were a youngster? So when I was a youngster in Iowa, um, Jim Kirsten, um, Governor Terry Branstead on his first set of terms in uh, Iowa um, were some of them that I remember meeting. And then when we moved down to Southwest Missouri, we, we've had a, a variety of them throughout the day. Norma Champion, mm-hmm. Roseanne yes. Bentley, um, Bob Dixon. Um, when I first came back to Springfield after going to college and law school, I met um, Eric Burleson on his first time running for office, uh, Lincoln Huff on his first time, um, helped them both out and and eventually, like I said, when, when they redistricted, got drawn into a brand new district and it seemed like an opportunity for me to get involved. Yeah, because uh, I remember over the years, I may have seen you when you were uh, a young lad uh, in Jeff City because I've been there from time to time when the large... Um, various homeschool lobbies come to Jeff City to either lobby to protect a bill or to get uh, another bill. So it was always fascinating to me um, to see that. You know, it's kind of democracy in motion. And uh, so it's it's very interesting. And so our listeners know, I mean, the, the homeschool lobby is major, and many give them a lot of credit for the ascendancy of some people like Todd Aiken and some other conservatives. Yeah, so it's definitely not an insignificant group. So give us a sense of kind of your your niches and interests in the Missouri House, because you're in the mega majority right now, but it seems like every House member we talk to is able to find something that they're they're particularly interested in and good at. What are kind of your, your particular interests in the Missouri House? Well, I'm really fortunate because last year I got the opportunity to chair the Emerging Issues Committee, which is similar to the old General Laws Committee. We kind of get a mixture of everything. So in our committee this year, we've heard uh, medical marijuana. We've heard Uber. In years past, we've heard the Tesla language. Um, We've heard the the big fight over refrigerated leasing for alcohol and um, brewers. Um, We've really had an opportunity to to get our hands into a lot of different issues. We've had the earnings tax. Um, The issues that I've worked on this year, primarily um, threefold, the the Uber issue, um, the... I've done a lot of work over the past two years on on some human trafficking reforms in Missouri, and then I've also had the opportunity to work on a, a, a small issue called the Walter Cronkite legislation um, involving um, giving more speech rights back to student journalists. So I've had I, I've been really fortunate to to be involved in a lot of things that that I think are interesting and that hopefully in some small way make the state of Missouri a better place to live and raise a family. Now, before we get into kind of the broader global issues that are dominating the legislature, let's talk a little bit about some of the issues that you're personally dealing with. The first one is is the Uber issue, which I think is kind of a shorthand for the way municipalities are able to license ride-sharing services like Uber or Lyft or whatever. Tell me kind of what is at stake and at issue here and what exactly you're trying to change. Sure. So Uber Uber is a shorthand because um, Lyft, when it first tried to open in St. Louis, Kansas City, was sued by local municipalities and just decided to go elsewhere. Um, but it is. It's, it's rideshare legislation. And what they essentially want is a statewide framework 
to operate under so that they can they can hire drivers in every area of the state as they move between municipal areas. They're not subject to different regulations and different rules in each area that they go to, but that if you're an Uber driver in Springfield and you take somebody to St. Louis, you can just as easily pick up somebody in St. Louis and drive them to Kansas City or back to Springfield, and the rules are uniform across the state. Um, and, and so we've heard this issue in my committee last year and this year um, when Representative Gosen had to resign. I was able to pick up one of his pieces of legislation that's in the Senate. Um, we had a hearing immediately before Senate break, um, essentially to lay out a, a series of rules for the state of Missouri to license rideshares as a state. Not necessarily each municipality. Um, this would preempt those and, and basically one set of rules. And, and one of the nice things is, it would go to each area and it would give the local taxis companies the opportunity to make the decision, do they want to be subject to the local municipal rule or would they like to opt into the statewide framework that we are attempting to, to allow? And so it has a variety of rules about safety, about insurance, about um, how the cars have to be that would be uniform across the state and would give new industries like Uber, like Lyft, an opportunity to come into areas of the state. Springfield doesn't have either one, Cape Girardeau. Um, and then some areas like Kansas City and St. Louis that have kind of been start and stops as they go, an opportunity to, to consistently have um, those opportunities for their local local people to, to either be an Uber driver, a Lyft driver, or to use those business opportunities um, as transportation. So obviously St. Louis has its own taxi commission that straddles between St. Louis and St. Louis County. And I think that's been one of the aggravating factors for Uber to legally operate. I mean, they are operating now, but they basically just started doing it without the taxi commission's permission. I'm not really sure what the, the present status of it is, but what would happen to those taxi commissions under your bill? Would they just kind of disappear and vanish into the ether? And if so, what impact is that going to have on the ability of localities to regulate something that's within their borders? Well, twofold. First of all, um, the the Uber's operating in St. Louis only because they have filed suit against um, St. Louis, essentially, to say that they they should be able to operate there. And so currently that that issue is in litigation. Under our framework, each individual taxi company, and there's a variety of them, would have the opportunity to say, we want to be subject to the St. Louis Tax Commission, or we would like to opt into this statewide framework. And so there's still a place for those local rules and those local taxi commissions to, to tailor their rules around whatever those particular urban areas would like. But also allows some freedom for rideshare services, which are operated very differently than taxi services, or the, the existing taxi services to say, we would like to operate under this statewide framework. There's there's different rules um, in regards to how they do background checks, in regards to how they do insurance, than they might have on a local municipal, municipal um, level. Now, is there any concern at all? I know in a couple other states, there's been some high-profile um, tragedies involving Uber drivers or alleged Uber drivers. Um is there in the proposed statewide legislation, is there anything regarding background checks or other stuff to prevent um, predators or others from just becoming Uber drivers? Absolutely. And, and actually, that's one of the interesting things. So, for instance, the most recent tragedy that occurred, uh, a lot of the headlines said Uber driver murders people. This person was one that had no history 
no background check would have ever found out that they had some problem in their past that would lead you to believe they could have just as easily been a taxi driver, a preschool teacher, whatever it was. Um, there are three requirements of the bill and three reasons that for ride shares, it, it, it has that safety check as good or better than taxi services. One, um, there's a mandatory background check that looks for felonies, um, looks into driving records, things like that. Two, there's a real-time feedback that you have with the rideshare company. So when you ride in an Uber or Lyft, as soon as the ride is over, you on your phone can give the driver a feedback, and the driver gets to give the passenger a feedback. And so when, when you hail an Uber, essentially when you put into Uber that you would like a car, you get to see their score. Well, if somebody has a consistent issue that, that they're concerned about, um, you're going to see if their score is lower. Also, if you type in your review of the driver and say, I, I was uncomfortable with this driver, I was concerned about this driver, Uber or Lyft both have internal policies that they will take that driver off the road during the period of time they investigate that complaint. And that's, that's a very powerful tool. And then third, and most importantly, if someone goes missing on an Uber driver, someone goes missing on a Lyft drive, Unlike a taxi service, because it's through an app, there is real-time GPA. So law enforcement can go back and request that, subpoena those records, and say, look, this is where the trip actually took them, and they have that immediate ability to locate that person. That's something you may not get with a taxi service. So there's actually not just on the background checks, but on the feedback and on the ability to locate and follow that path, you have technology that gives people more safety than, than anything we've had in the past. So we'll be following that probably for the next few weeks before the legislature adjourns. Tell us a little bit about your human trafficking legislation, or more accurately, your legislation aimed at stopping human trafficking. Last year, um, and, and this actually happened several years ago, I, I, I met um, a person who ended up working with the Missouri Sheriff's Association is their human trafficking advocate. And um, her and I got to be friends, and we've watched what's happened on the state level and the national level. And um, we watched Congresswoman Wagner and some of the things that she was trying to do on the national level. And um, this friend and I talked, and I said, you know, no one on the state level has really taken up this issue in the past few years, and I feel like there's, there's some reforms that we could do. And so I offered one bill last year and in the um, in the shutdown of the Senate during the last week of session my, my bill died on the Senate floor but I was fortunate enough to be named the chair of the interim task force on human trafficking so we went on around the state we got to hear feedback from a lot of the different players in this whether it's a safe house uh, local prosecutors, law enforcement, people that have been trafficked in the past and come out of it, got to give feedback on what they think the state could do to move forward in, in reforming human trafficking. You know, probably the biggest thing that we confront is a concern that there's almost this melees among humans in Missouri and people that, that think this is an East Coast problem, that's a foreign problem, that it's not something that affects us here in Jefferson City, here in Springfield, here in our local neighborhoods. And so we heard stories from people talking about, you know, uh, they, they were invited to a party, they met somebody online, they went to some event, they were drugged, and then they were trafficked for a year or three years or 10 years. And this is a real ongoing problem there's both sexual trafficking and there's labor trafficking where you take groups of people to areas to do work, for, whether it's in the fields or, or hard labor, and, and it's against their will. It's, it's modern-day slavery, and so <clears throat> a few years ago, Missouri was, was at the forefront of combating this. And then as other issues have popped up, 
um, we've we've maybe fallen behind in some of the reforms other states have done. So the primary issue that I'm working on right now is to ban the advertisement of human trafficking. Um, uh, Oklahoma passed this some years ago. They passed this on the federal level some years ago. But um, whether it's Backpage.com, whether it's low-tech ways such as putting stuff on bulletin boards at, at gas stations or truck stops or handing out flyers, there's a variety of ways that if you have a victim, you can advertise that victim to Johns around the state. If we could figure out a way to cut off that advertisement, it essentially dries up the market for this and, and will push them away from Missouri. And so, Have you been talking to uh, Congresswoman Ann Wagner from the St. Louis area? This human trafficking has been one of her big issues in Congress. And, of course, um, Senator Claire McCaskill has also been working on this issue in the U.S. Senate. Have you been talking to either of them about some of this? Yes, absolutely. In fact, Congresswoman Wagner came to the Capitol last year to testify in favor of my legislation. Um, we've we've kept in close contact while her Federal Save Act was passed through the, the House and Senate this year. Um, we're close to having it done this year. The, the bill that I had last year ended up on the Senate calendar the last week of session when it shut down. This year, we've already been heard in committee. Um, we've, we've passed the House committee, the House floor, and her, been heard in Senate committee. Um, I would say I'm hopeful that, that in April we'll have a vote in the Senate and be on to the governor's desk. So let's talk about some issues that I think are the entire legislature is dealing with, although your issues that you just talked about, the legislature may be dealing with them soon. One of the things that occurred last night was that a landmark overhaul of municipal governance, widely known as Senate Bill 5, much of it was struck down by a Cole County judge. Now, just for our listeners, this is not totally unusual that a Cole County judge will strike down a law and then the Missouri Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals end up being the final arbiter here. But I wanted to ask you, what is kind of going to be the legislative reaction to this, given that what was struck down was this dual uh, percentage standard of the percentage of fine revenue that cities could keep in their budgets? And, and, and you know, St. Louis counties could keep 12.5 percent. The rest of the state could keep 20 percent. Is the legislature maybe considering just making this uniform across the state at this point? It's pretty early to make those determinations since this just happened last night. I can't speak for for the Senate or really even for the House as a whole about what our reaction is to be um, to to this ruling. Um, I know there's a lot of people that that believe that on appeal um, that the ruling will be reversed. That that think that in the Court of Appeals or at the Supreme Court level that the initial SB five legislation will be reinstated. But last year, as most pieces of legislation, um, as happens to most of them, there was a lot of negotiations between the Senate and the House, between groups like urban and rural um, counties trying to make a determination of how best to move the state forward. And what they decided on was that 12.5 number for St. Louis, 20% for the rest of the state. At this point, because of how recent the verdict is, I don't know that the legislature is ready to, to move forward believing that that the Cole County judge's decision is the final word on this. Um, I think there's a there's probably going to be a move to let this play out in the appellate level and see whether or not the initial SB5 legislation will be reinstated before we make a determination about moving forward. I mean, there had been some predictions including me. I that there may be a problem with these two different percentage standards. I mean, I'm not saying either percentage was right or wrong. It's just that from the face of it, you could see where 
there could be legal arguments raised because different communities were going to be subjected to different standards. Was there a particular reason why why people and why governments in your district or in Southwest Missouri did not want to have the twelve and a half percent, or why there wasn't a thought about maybe increasing the St. Louis areas, or so everybody had seventeen, let's say, or or what, whatever. I'm just wondering about what the argument was. Yeah, basically, we're wondering like what was the rationale to keep it at twenty percent for the rest of the state, but twelve point five percent for St. Louis County. Uh, I, so I candidly, I was not a member of the Judiciary Committee in the House, and, and so I wasn't privy to these conversations. But I think it's it's fair to assess that there was a pretty strong push from the Senate to hold to initially the bill was to cut it to ten percent, um, and, and to hold as closely as possible to that number. Then you had a little pushback from a lot of the rural areas that said, you know, we're coming down from a much higher number than this, the Max Creek Law that was originally passed, and trying to hold closer to that. And at some point, um, there was a compromise struck where they said, because most of the problems have come and because a lot of these counties are tre- have different issues that they deal with on a daily basis, we can come up with different numbers for certain counties. And so they made a determination that 12.5% for the St. Louis areas, 20% for the rest of the state was a deal that everybody could agree with. Now, is that constitutional? I can't... I, I can't say that. You know, the, the Cole County judge obviously didn't believe so. I, I've, I've heard several attorneys say that they're fairly confident that on at the appellate level that will be overturned. I'll be, I mean, I, I just can't say that. All I can say is that from the legislative um, position, um, I, I think there's a good good group of people that would like to see that be played out in the, in the, the Court of Appeals before we make a determination about whether or not we want to hew more close to the 12 and a half or the 20 percent if we got to have to do a statewide number. I, I want to ask a more global question because th- this this particular provision was struck down because the judge in this case believed that it was a special law to create a different type of scheme for St. Louis County than the rest of the state. But it's my understanding that the legislature often passes bills that are specifically for certain areas of the state, whether it be for Kansas City, St. Louis, St. Louis County. I'm sure that there have been Springfield-centric laws that are done. Is is there any fear that if this ruling is upheld, it could serve as precedent against legislative action that is specific toward a particular area of the state? And it could actually have pretty long-lasting ramifications beyond this particular bill. You know, I don't know how, how much I would play that. A lot of times the legislation we pass may say for— for third-class counties, for fourth-class counties. This legislation was a slightly different because it's blanket legislation for the state, but it specifically carves out St. Louis County. So um, I don't know that you can necessarily draw a parallel between this legislation and, and everywhere else in the state. This legislation was subject to a lot of debate and a lot of scrutiny and a lot of real discussion between rural and urban areas about we wanted to pass something for the state of Missouri, but whether or not we could have a one-size-fits-all for every county in the state, that that was a, a tougher decision, one that they necessarily, couldn't necessarily come to. I don't I don't think even if the court strikes this down and the legislature has to come back and, and reassess how they're going to handle that, I don't think that necessarily reaches all the other legislation that we do that, that may be specific for, for certain areas or for certain size counties or anything like that. So um, now with all this, uh, we've also got several other major issues that are going to be uh, fomenting in the next week or two. And among them is um, 
SB 39, which is the bill. SJR 39. SJR 39, correction, um, which uh, basically allows uh, religious groups and I think some businesses, correct me if I'm wrong, um, to decline to um, provide services for same-sex couples. Um, There's been a lot of heat. You've seen some stuff play out in other states where um, you just recently had the governor of Georgia veto a bill similar uh, you got a uh, the governor of North Carolina who signed it, and there's a lot of stuff going on about whether or not there's national fallout. I'm just interested in your take on how this is playing out here and what you think may happen and what you think should happen. You know, um, one of the things about SJR 39 that, that is unique is um, unlike a lot of these other states, unlike what we saw in Georgia and North Carolina, which, to be candid, are, are very different bills and deal with very different issues than what – SJR 39 deals with. Probably the most interesting about SJR 39 is is actually what we just pointed out, that it is an SJR. It, it, it's not necessarily a bill that the House and Senate vote on and the governor weighs in on. It's one that sends the voters. And so, you know, with, with the Supreme Court decision um, last year uh, allowing gay marriage, we're, we're now at a new point um, in our country's history. And essentially what we've got now is, is a, a divide where we've not, as a country, decided where the line for religious freedom and the line for um, preventing discrimination against same-sex couples, where that line needs to be drawn. And so you've had in certain states in the country, Oregon and New Mexico being the most obvious examples with the photographer and the cake maker, people that have said not necessarily that they don't want to provide uh, goods to gay people, but they don't want to be necessarily involved in the actual wedding. And so what Senator Otter did is, is attempt to craft a bill that says we are going to protect religious groups and some vendors, specifically those cake makers and, and, and people with artistic or expressive um, businesses, protect them from whether or not if they choose not to be involved in the actual wedding ceremony if it's against their sincerely held religious beliefs. Um, so the bill's fairly narrowly crafted. And then at the end of the day, if if the House ends up passing it or sends it back to the Senate with some changes and the Senate passes it, it goes to the voters. And I think that's actually a fairly crucial part of this bill, because unlike what may have happened in Georgia or North Carolina, where something advanced very quickly, if this goes to the voters, the earliest it would be heard would be August, and, and it could be heard as late as November. This is not something that will be rushed through really quickly. It will have time to marinate. It will have time for the voters to consider it and, and try to weigh where they think that line should be drawn. They're and frankly, I, I think that's good for our state to allow our constituents to weigh in on something brand new like that to as to where that line should be and exactly how we want our, our state to move forward on an issue like that. Numerous business groups, including the Missouri Chamber of Commerce, as well as the St. Louis and KC Chambers of Commerce, have come out against this uh, particular proposed amendment. They've said that even though it is a constitutional amendment that needs to be voted on by the voters, it should just be scrapped because they don't even want a chance of it sending a bad message to potential employers and business groups. I'm sure that you've heard from a lot of those groups because many of them typically are, are, are generally friendly with Republican legislators. Is that going to make a difference about whether the House brings this up or not? I don't think it necessarily makes a difference as to whether or not the House debates it. I think, obviously, the, the business community has a, has a strong voice in the legislature, and I think that's important because part of what we do is, is try to 
uh, provide opportunities for businesses to thrive and succeed in our state. At the same time, I, I think it's a harder pill to swallow to say that that businesses are telling the legislature we don't want the voters to weigh in on this issue. And that's that's a harder decision. Now, whether or not we accept what the Senate did or we we craft some alternative and send it back to the Senate, at the end of the day, I think it's a good thing for the citizens of the state of Missouri to have a say in this issue. And obviously a lot depends on how that, that issue is crafted, how it goes on the ballot and which ballot it goes on. But I think this is, an, this is a, a new issue, and it's a new issue for a lot of people to consider. And so it's an issue that has such weight and importance to both the religious community as well as to the LGBT community that I think there's a lot of value and a lot to be said to allow the state as a whole to weigh in and not just 163 House members and 34 Senate members. The only other question I had on this is more of a <coughs> st strategic one. Um, one of the things that I have noticed is the Senate has not really acted on a lot of ethics-related legislation that the House passed fairly early on. In some instances, they've either shelved it or changed it so dramatically that it's way beyond what the House passed. I, again, this is probably more of a question for either House Speaker Todd Richardson or the House Majority Leader Mike Searpoy. But is it possible that they may, that the House may hold off on dealing with SJR 39 until the Senate is a bit more active on some of these ethics bills? Or is SJR 39 just not strong enough of a bargaining chip to use to try to get that ethics legislation passed? I, I think it's fair to say that's a better question for, for House leadership. I, I'm not privy to conversations about House and Senate negotiations. All, all I can do is weigh each bill as I see it, whether it's a House bill or Senate bill, weigh it on its own merits and, and try to make a determination about whether or not it's it's a net positive to the state of Missouri to move forward. I, I can't say whether or not it'll be used as a bargaining chip on, on ethics reform or anything else. We will have to see about that. Now, I want to just caution our listeners before we get to this next topic that we are recording this on Tuesday at 2.11 p.m. It's very possible when we post this that this bill may or may not be overridden by the time it goes, um, by the time this is posted. But the topic I wanted to talk about next is so-called paycheck protection, which is the, the moniker called by proponents, or paycheck deception, which is called by the opponents. Joe, can you just explain what this is, first of all? Well, basically, this and this would only in, involve public employee unions, not private unions. Uh, basically, it would require the unions to get an annual authorization from the uh, employees. And this would include teacher groups, by the way. The way the definition is, it includes teacher associations, to get an annual authorization for... Um, their dues to be deducted from their paychecks. Uh, right now, they just have to do it once, although they can rescind it at any time. Now, uh, this bill does not apply to police and firefighter groups and unions, which has raised some constitutional questions. Um, I'm just interested in, we're going to be careful and not, the governor vetoed it. It passed both chambers by veto-proof margins, but just barely. The governor vetoed it, and it's now going to be up for override attempts without getting into the votes because they may or may not have been done by the time we are airing this. Um, this bill had been pushed once before a couple years ago. I'm just interested in your take on what the general view is of the proponents who are trying to get this passed and what do you see happening, whether or not it's overridden. You know, my my 
my frank belief, and we'll find out whether or not this prognostication is correct over the next few days, is that um, the House will act fairly quickly on this this veto override. Um, as you stated, we had 110 votes to pass it. Um, that's an overwhelming, more than two-thirds majority of the House wants to move it. All of leadership is on board with it. Um, so, so my guess is that we will move to it fairly quickly. Um, it's our belief that that union workers, it's imp- imperative that they have say in where those dues go and that this legislation moves that ball forward and essentially gives them those opportunities. And so I would guess that the House would move this fairly quickly. Um, obviously can't speak for the Senate because I don't know those determinations yet or how they will 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 want to move it if and when the House passes it. But my, my frank assessment is we will probably bring it up fairly quickly in short order, and I would be surprised if the vote is not identical or or very similar to what it was the last time we brought it up. Now, is there concern about the constitutional issues? I mean, similar to what we're facing with SB5, but in this case, it's because the police and firefighter groups and unions are not um, included. In fact, the governor's veto letter made reference to that. Um, Was there a particular reason why police and firefighter uh, associations and unions were not included? Once again, on this issue, I was not either the bill sponsor or a member of the committee that the bills moved through. Um, the constitutional issues were raised at, at somewhat the 11th hour, um, right before everything was, was sent to the governor. And so I've not actually had the opportunity to, to do a deep dive into the details of that to make a determination. My preliminary review, I did not see a constitutional problem with the legislation as drafted. Um, but again, that it was an issue that was it was somewhat brought in right at the end. And so um, it's an issue that, that kind of has been used to, to look back on the legislation and, and try to kind of Monday morning quarterback it and say, here's the problem with the legislation after it's been drafted. It's not something we heard early on in the debate. Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was the fate of photo ID. Um, that's another issue that's expected to get some sort of vote in the next few weeks. It's a two-pronged thing where you have one measure that would put it on the ballot for voters to look at to decide whether or not to um, allow it, the requirement. The second would be implementation. Um, what are your thoughts about what's going to happen in the next few weeks on that legislation? Again, I, I, I would be uh, I would not be surprised if the House goes to it fairly quickly in short order. Um, photo ID has been a, a really a pillar of Republican Party politics over the past 10 or 15 years. Um, you look back at even the U.S. Supreme Court decision that came out of Indiana and the Indiana versus Marion County decision um, some years ago where, where John Paul Stevens, who's he's considered a fairly liberal member of the U.S. Supreme Court, sided with the conservatives in a 6-3 to three ruling, upheld photo ID that came out of Indiana. Um, parties around the country have, have, have made an attempt to, to pass photo ID to improve the integrity of elections. I would not be surprised to see that the House and Senate make a, a move fairly quickly in order to move that. As I said, it's been a priority for both bodies for several years now, and I think um, a lot of us feel like we're, we're, we're right at the last portion where we can we can just push it across the finish line. And so I would say that will probably be one of the priorities of the second half of the legislative session. Would there have to be a situation where you, you end up passing uh, a statutory change and uh, a constitutional amendment basically at the same time? Because I think that a statutory change that was rep- that was sponsored by Representative Justin Alferman has already passed the House, but I'm not sure if the constitutional amendment has passed yet. What's, right. kind of, and, what's kind of the status of that? And I think some years ago, we tried a statutory change. The Missouri Supreme Court weighed in and struck it down. There's right. been attempts to do two 
both essentially. Um, personally, in my opinion, I, I always believe voter ID is a good good idea, so I'm probably going to be supportive of, of both measures. But I think as, as far as putting it into state statute versus constitutional, I, I'm in support of, of putting it into the Constitution because I think it is one thing that does generally improve the integrities of election, particularly with some of the protections that have been built into the bill to provide um, documents for, for some of the lower-income residents that need it, whether it be a birth certificate or things like that. I think it's something that that's so important to public perception as far as the integrity of our election system that I think um, it being a part of our state constitution is is probably a good move for Missouri. And there's a structural component to that as well, because when um, the photo ID law was struck down in 2006, I think one of the things that came out of that ruling is if there was ever going to be a government issued photo ID requirement, it would have to there would have to be an, an essentially a constitutional amendment first. Um, and then and an, basically an enabling statute. Is, right. we, we, this is getting kind of into wonky legalese, but, I mean, that's just the reality of getting this past the finish line. Right. Now, uh, one of the things, uh, real real quick here, now the Indiana law, however, required, allowed more different types of photo IDs than what um, has been proposed in Missouri's implementation legislation. Um is there any thought about, I mean, like student uh, IDs and some other things were, are allowed, which um, is not true of the, at least the proposals that have been presented in Missouri. Do you see any legal issues with that? Or um, I'm, I'm just interested if, there, if you think there may be some additional debate on that. As far as constitutional challenges, I don't think that's necessarily an issue. Um, obviously, it's a balancing test because what you want to do is you want to ensure the integrity of the election while making sure that that particularly people that that don't have uh, easy access to a photo ID or the the requirements to get a driver's license, whether it be a birth certificate or or what have you, um, have those same opportunities as anybody else in the state. But I don't think requiring it specifically to uh, driver's license necessarily is a problem versus what you saw in the Indiana versus Marion County case, which, as you said, was was a ver- more wide variety of, of photo IDs. I don't necessarily think it's a problem the, the Missouri bills that have been proposed that have a, a more narrow definition. Now, one more issue before we sign off here is actually going kind of back to something that you've sponsored I believe that you have sponsored a, a piece of legislation named after Walter Cronkite, and I don't think that it's honoring like his homestead in St. Joseph or anything. It actually has to do with freedom of speech at colleges. Uh, give me a sense of what it is and why you think it's needed. Sure. So um, earlier uh, last year, uh, a professor from Missouri Western Univer- State University in St. Joe, where I graduated from college, um, and, and was the, the birthplace of Walter Cronkite, he reached out to me and um, he had a piece of legislation that had passed in several other states. And essentially what it did is it rolled back some, some old Supreme Court decisions and granted some more free speech right to student journalists. And so um, really in the history of Missouri over the past 25 years or so, twice the eyes of the nation have looked to Missouri when it came to issues about student speech. The first time was in the 80s, and it was the Hazelwood case that that came out of Hazelwood, Missouri, and it had to do with a student journalist who was writing an article, and in that article, the, the person who was in charge of editing on behalf of the school made a, a personal determination they thought the article was unfair or did not necessarily um, was not something that that students should necessarily be reading about or, or maybe wasn't balanced enough and so they made a determination as a faculty advisor to cut the article 
that student, um, Kathy Hazelwood, now Kathy Hazel, uh, or Kathy Colmeyer, I'm sorry, Kathy Colmeyer Fry, sued, and that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court found on behalf of the school board and said, no, the school has that has that right, if they want, that they can censor that. Then last year, you had the situation at the University of Missouri, and Professor Melissa Click prevented a student at the time, Tim Ty, from videotaping what was going on. And so both times, essentially what when, when, when the nation looked towards Missouri, Missouri came down on the side of penalizing and preventing spe- free speech rights to these journalists. And so the professor reached out and he said, you know, this legislation was passed in several other states. It rolls back the Hazelwood standard that the Supreme Court put in place in, in the late 80s to the Tinker standard, which was before that. And, and really what it does is it shifts the burden from the, the school to say why they believe that, you know, they can they can censor this and the, the, the student journalist has to show why they can't or shouldn't censor it. It puts the burden back on the school to show why they they should be able to prevent that from going to print. And so I think it's it's beneficial because you know particularly we've got University of Missouri in the state of Missouri, the top journalism school in the country. We've got a ton of high schools around the state that do a great job of journalism. I think it's important that we give those student journalists, whether they're in high school or in college, as much opportunity and free speech rights as as we give to the journalists that have graduated from college and now work in 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 the government or they work in um, journalism around the state we give them those as much of those same rights as they have so that when they leave high school when they leave college and they enter the real world and they 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 begin working for whether the Missouri Press Association the St. Louis Post Dispatch the Springfield News Leader they get they they come out of those educational opportunities with the best best opportunity to move forward and have a successful career in the press. Um, with, without the press, um, you don't have that counterbalance to the government, to private industry. Um, you need that. And so I think by, by stilting that, whether it's in the high school or the, the college level, we've essentially hamstrung those students to come out and be better journalists. And I think this would give those those students a better opportunity to come out and, and to move forward. You know, this portions of this law, both on the high school and the college level, are already in place in a, a dozen other states around the country. We've not seen a lot of the horror stories that some of the school board administrations or, or college administrations have come out and said, oh, you know, we'll have libel lawsuits and we'll have students run amok. We haven't seen those issues pop up around the state. So I, I think it's good public policy. The, the House agreed. We passed it with almost 150 votes um, right before spring break. Uh, Senator Schmidt is going to carry the bill in the Senate. Um, we're hopeful we can move it through the Senate and, and join those other states. Um, we've named it after Walter Cronkite because, you know, he's probably the, the most well-known journalist to come out of Missouri. We think this would carry on his legacy in an appropriate way in the state of Missouri. Well, uh, it's hard to vote against Walter Cronkite, but we'll see yes. if that ma- manages to pass the Senate. We are out of time. We appreciate your indulgence on, on many different topics that will dominate the legislature in its, in its last few weeks. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And, and don't you have like 16 Twitter accounts, Representative? <laughs> 
I, I've, I've got three. I've got a personal one that's just at Elijah Har. I've got one that I just tweet about what we're doing at the legislature, and it's at support Elijah. And then um, when I was first knocking on doors in, in a campaign for state representative, I met a, a family, and the, the daughter spoke English but said her parents didn't follow politics because they only spoke Spanish. And so I tweet also from a, a Spanish-only account, and and. Um, I, I took four semesters of Spanish. I don't speak fluent, but I speak broken Spanish. And so um, I also have a third account that I tweet only in Spanish from and, and try to at least somewhat keep keep people up to speed about what's going on in the legislature through that account. Well, I'm sure that um, I'm sure that people that speak Spanish all across Missouri are very grateful for that public service, not just in Springfield. So thank you for that. And until next week, so long. Buried deep as you can dig inside yourself and cover